Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best fits with Die With The Zero by Big Billy Willie Perkins, getting all you can from your money and your life. You know, you've probably heard the classic Aesop's fable, the ant and the grasshopper. You've got the industrious ant, worked all summer long, storing food for the winter. Then you've got the carefree grasshopper that just played the fiddle, just bouncing around all summer. When winter came, the ant had a whole bunch of food that it was able to survive on. The grasshopper was pretty cooked. Bit of a uh, praise fable in our culture, you could say. And the whole moral of it is say, hey, there's a time for work and a time for play. Um, great moral, but you know, we always say, hey, you're better off being the ant. But when does the ant ever get to play? Do you really want to just be an ant just storing food forever? Yeah, the implicit nature of that story is saying, stop being a grasshopper, get serious and work hard and save up. But there's somewhere in between. It's a false dichotomy that you're either the ant or the grasshopper. We need to be a, the grasshopper that plays a bit or the ant that saves a bit. So that's the, really the focus of this book. It's about thriving and not just surviving. It's not about making your money grow. It's about making your life grow. Back in October 2008, Erin and her husband, John, they were both successful lawyers. They had three young children when they got the, uh, the dreaded phone call that John had clear cell sarcoma, uh, a rare and rapidly growing cancer that really eats away at the body's soft tissues. Now, nobody thought that a healthy 35-year-old would have a tumor this size of a baseball, uh, Aaron recalled. So, no one suspected cancer was this until the tumor had spread to John's back and his legs and his bones. Um, and they really didn't understand how serious it was until that an x-ray, which lit up like a Christmas tree on, on the spine. It was a grim diagnosis, obviously. The, it really just terrified Erin. It really overwhelmed her. Um, John, he was too sick to work, which meant Erin really took on the full burden, the full responsibility of taking care of the family, both physically and financially. It was just a lot for one person to bear. So uh, Big Bill, the saviour, the author of this book, came along. He'd been friends with him for a long time, ever since they were kids. So he said, look, I've got a bit of coin. Is there anything I can do? You know, How about you do this? How about Erin? Stop working. Look after John, look after the kids, spend time as a family, I'll cover the costs. Yeah, well, very nice, isn't it? Yeah. Very nice of Bill. Um, and it turns out he was preaching to the choir because Aaron had already been started to think about quitting work to focus on really what mattered at this time. And that's exactly what she did. So, you know, at their home in Iowa between John's cancer treatments, they really enjoyed the simple pleasures of just hanging out together as a couple. They'd go to the park, they'd watch movies, play video games and pick their kids up at school together and uh, was really enjoying that time. Absolutely. Three months after that diagnosis, John succumbed to the disease. He passed away. Now, looking back at that period, obviously, there was the, the trauma and there was the devastation, of course, with losing the husband and the father of your three kids. But she was so glad that she quit her job. She could have easily thought, oh, man, these bills are piling up. You know, I'm going to have to keep working, keep working, keep working. Three months later, your husband's gone. You missed all that time. So she realized that it was the right decision to just take those three months off. So death wakes people up and the closer it gets, it makes us more aware of what's actually happening in our lives. And when the end is near, only then we start thinking, hey, what the hell am I doing? Why did I wait this long? I've been an ant for so long. Mm. Just stockpiling and stockpiling and stockpiling. Has this whole trade been worth it? Obviously, that behavior is rational. The ant behavior, you need to save up. You can't just think, oh, well, I just want to quit the job and go to the park every day. You need to have a bit of a balance in between. But the thing is that too many people go too ant. They go too hard on the ant. Ant mode, that's it. That's it. They, they delay gratification for too long. 
um, almost indefinitely. It's good to obviously delay a little bit of gratification, but you can't just delay it forever. Yeah, so clearly the story of Aaron and John's an extreme case. They were in ant mode too long, and then they got out of ant mode at the very, very extreme end. But the challenge of their situation is really common to everybody listening here. Everyone's health generally declines with time and sooner or later the longer you leave it you'll be in a a not as good position as you would have been if you enjoyed it earlier so that prompts the question you know how do we make the most of our finite time on earth you know it's a bit of a philosophical question but big bill he was an engineer so rather than go on the philosophy approach he went the engineering approach you know how can i maximize outputs minimize inputs you know how can i maximize fulfillment with as least waste as possible so really he's looking at this optimization problem how do you get the most out of your life that's it the best way to allocate your life energy before you die that's a real engineer's way of looking at (laughs) not a philosopher and he came up with some guiding principles Um, for example some experiences in your life that can only be enjoyed at certain times for example water skiing there's only a window you can do that Uh, you can't do it in your 90s Footy, Astro, the window's closing on you, mate. I know you're in denial here. Uh, you're at the very end. You're going to get the call up from the, the old coach and you'll probably say yes and then pull hammies like I did a couple of years ago. But there is a window closing on all the activities. That's it. There are certain activities you can only do at certain times of your life. You can't just put them off forever because you'll miss that opportunity. Another principle, he says that even though we've got the potential to always make more money in the future, you can never go back and recapture any of the time that's gone in the past or in the present. So he's saying that it doesn't make sense to let all opportunities pass us by out of the fear of squandering money because what we're really doing is squandering our life. So living life fully takes many forms, right? If you're trying to maximize, what was his question? Maximize (laughs) our life energy before we die. There's many different ways you can do it. For example, um, Bill, he loves to travel. He loves poker. So what he does, he takes a lot of trips and some of them to play poker tournaments. And this means a big percentage of what he spends goes on travel and poker yeah not for everyone (laughs) especially if you suck at at poker (laughs) if the book is uh die with zero quite literally if you just spend all your money on poker and you shoot at poker (laughs) you could very quickly get to zero but he's saying that you need to find your equivalent for him he loves traveling loves poker uh what's the difference for you you know like he says that some some people might love gardening some people love the travel some people love going to the beach some people love hiking mountains you got to work out what your metaphorical equivalent of traveling to poker tournaments is so there are rules across the board for all humans and one of them is you're better off starting to invest in experiences early he says that life the quality of your life is the sum of your experiences so when he does his engineering maximization problem he's looking to try to maximize the value of the experiences So plan for your future, but never uh, forget to enjoy the present. So it means that everything you do in your life, the daily, weekly, monthly, annual, and once-in-a-lifetime experience as you have, sort of do them consciously and make sure you understand that they're adding up to who you are because that Mm. sum of experience is who you become. When you look back on your life, uh, if you feel like you're coming towards the end, it's going to be the richness of those experiences that are going to determine how you judge your life. Do you say to have a liver full healthy life that I got to do all these things that I want to do or did I miss out on those experiences? There's a quote here from Carson, the butler of downtown Abbey, the famous uh, philosopher. (laughs) One of your favorite shows. Yeah, that's right. The business of life is the acquisition of memories. In the end, that's all there is. Big call. Yeah, probably probably true. That's a good quote. And, uh, you know, Bill must have been binging downtown Abbey and it didn't really hit him too hardly, that quote. But then eventually, when he saw the decline of his father's own life, uh, he saw that his father's health was declining, his physical ability was declining. He wanted to take their family on a vacation, but his dad physically couldn't go. So what he did instead, 
um, was all he got was an iPad. He got an iPad full of memories, you know, photos of dad when he was a star quarterback and then photos of them growing up as kids and then photos of the trip that they went on when they were 12 years old and all these things. And he realized that the memories, that is the real point. Mm. The experiences obviously pay off at the time, but then you've got the memories that you can retire on later as well. So, you retire on your memories. That's what it really hit him. And he, you can imagine if the grandfather was just an ant and you got an iPad of just ant, ant work from, <laughs> from dawn to dusk for the whole life. Imagine that iPad. Oh, yeah, I went to the office this day. Oh, yep. Yeah, next day, yep. Yeah, I was at the office there. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yeah, oh, that was a good day. I was at the office. <laughs> yeah, a decade later, the same office and the same experiences. There's not much going on there. You might have stockpiled your cash, but when you're sitting in that deathbed going through those, those memories, there's not much going on right there. When he goes uh, full engineer mode, He's trying to calculate a value of the experiences. You know, how do you put value on experiences? Maybe you can't get an exact value, but it's definitely going to help. If you think about it in terms of like enjoyment points you get from each experience, you can treat it as a bit of a game. You know, peak experiences, you might get 10 or 15 points from some fantastic, awesome uh, trip you go on. Maybe there's a small pleasures, things that you do each day, you might get one or two points for. It's all about building up as many points as you possibly can to maximize those experiences. I think a lot of people before reading a book like this, you'd see experiences and putting money into that area of your life is pure to spend, spend, mm. spend, spend. Um, you're trading money for a spend. But what he's saying is actually not spending money and blowing money away. It's actually an investment. So, you know, thinking about terms in this way, he says it can be seen as a memory dividend mm. that uh, pays you more over time. Yeah, it is an interesting uh, reframe to invest in experiences. You know, most people would say, yeah, blue money on the Bali trip. He would say, I invested in partying in Bali for two weeks because what if you think of an investment, okay, well, you think of stock market bonds, put money in, hoping to get more money out later. He says, well, you can extrapolate an investment to say you invest in your child's education. You know, you pay 50 grand to send them to college, they get a degree. The investment there is hoping they're going to make more money in the future. But he says, well, you can take it even a step further. You know, the payoff from an investment doesn't have to be financial. Like when you teach your daughter to swim or you teach your daughter to ride a bike, you're not doing that because you think that she's going to make money out of riding a bike later. It's because of the experience that comes from that as well. So the investment you're making can pay off in other non-financial ways. So these experiences of you built up end up being dividends because we have memories and the longer time you have that experience and the more times you remember it, the more value you mm. actually get from that original experience. So, you know, when you have an experience, you get that current in the moment enjoyment, but all the times you get to relive it later and you get that mental and emotional benefit from that original time you had it. Absolutely. And so, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. He's obviously in the, in the book, he's got graphs and charts and numbers and, you know, Excel spreadsheets of the value of an experience and then the paying off, you know, dividends years and years later and how they stack up. We probably won't go into that much detail, but it kind of makes intuitive sense if you think of... Um, most recently for me. So, okay, I bought the experience of going with mum to go see the Billy Joel concert in Melbourne. And now that was an experience where it paid off, obviously cost a whole bunch of money, you know, I don't know, 500 bucks to buy tickets to go to it, plus dinner, plus, you know, travel to go in there. So, it's probably cost us, well, it cost mum, mum shouted. <laughs> it's the best investment I've ever that. made. It <laughs> cost mum, you know, maybe 750 oh, bucks for that day. But if you think about that in terms of the experience, okay, we've had, <laughs> if you think about, you know, okay, you got six months between buying the ticket and going to the concert, so you've got the excitement of going that whole way through. You've obviously got the experience of the three-hour concert, which was fucking epic, 
And then you've got, it was, you know, six weeks ago, we've had six weeks of reliving it. And I'm sure for the next 60 years, I'm going to be thinking about how sick that concert was. Every time a Billy Joel song comes on the radio, I'm going to get the memory dividend of yeah, thinking back to that concert. Together. Yeah, mate. I think reading this, you know, planning for a wedding, it sort of built the case up for loading up for the wedding. <laughs> it really <laughs> does. Like not going too cheap because you only have it once and your whole lifetime, you're not going to have all your mates and everyone in the one place that single time. Load up, spend big, <laughs> blow it all, and um, you'll be better off for it in the long run. And so, if we take his investment philosophy here, he's saying that, okay, if every year you're getting a dividend on that memory, obviously, maybe the dividends will get small. They're going to be huge at the start and maybe trail off, but you're always going to have every year a small dividend from that experience. He's saying, like any investment then, the best time to start is as early as possible. If you invest in experiences... Two years before death, you get two years of dividends. If you're investing in experience 60 years before death, you're getting 60 years of dividends. Yeah, so when Warren Buffett gets asked about how to invest cash, start early, start early, start early. And what Bill was saying, he's basically the Warren Buffett of experiences. <laughs> um, exact same advice when it comes to investing in life experiences. Start early, start early, start early. Autopilot's a nice thing for most things we do in life. It makes things easy. You don't have to think about it. But he says autopilot, when it comes to trying to live a full and optimal life, you don't want to take the path of least resistance. You don't want to be on autopilot. You need to get a bit intentional about planning your life. Yeah, that word. You used to love that a few seasons ago. It's yeah. back again. Um, one way to look at it is we've got a story about John Arnold here. Pretty classic made-up name, you'd say. But anyway, <laughs> he became uh, <laughs> became uh, mates with him a few years before he became a billionaire. Because after he met him, he started a hedge fund called Centaurus. And the goal of them was converting energy trading XFCs into riches. He said, look, mate, once I make 15 mil, I'm getting out of this game. If I continue to keep going, just punch me in the face. (laughs) That's right. John, he was a pretty brilliant guy. He understood perfectly well that beyond a certain point, making a whole bunch more money doesn't really add a whole lot of value. He figured, okay, I reckon 15 mil, that's going to set me up for life. It's going to set my family up for life. Once I'm done, I'm done. But of course, Johnny got to 15 mil, kept trading. Bill didn't punch him like he was requested to. He got to 25 mil, got to 100 mil, keeps going, gets to 150 mil. You know, he's a multi, multi, multi millionaire. Uh, eventually, you know, 10 years later, he's got so much money, he starts giving it away. Him and his wife, they set up a, uh, an asset pool for charitable donations where they gave away $711 million. Eventually, Johnny Arnold, he retired at age 38 with a personal fortune of $4 billion. I think it's a pretty good story. That's a fucking epic story. Good on you, John. But for the vast majority of people, he obviously was in autopilot and just went bang, bang, and bang and kept on going. Most of us can only dream of that retiring at the age of 38. Um, Yet for John, according to Bill, it's a bit too late. Yeah. Most people are going to be like, oh, suck it up, John. Retiring at 38, that's fantastic. You know, most people are thinking retirement age is what, 67 or 68 or something. But Bill's saying, nah, John actually was late. Now, obviously, one reason he was too late was all those years that he spent effectively working for free. You know, beyond a, once you've got a billion, two billion, three billion, four billion, you can't possibly spend it. So you're making money that you can never possibly spend. So Bill's saying you can, you're effectively working for free. And during that time that you're working for free, You've lost the years of your 30s, you know. Maybe you can't play footy anymore at age 38. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, you can't you never be 30 again. You can't play footy. You can never um, have that same time with his babies and his kids. But if he quit at 15 mil, he may never have got to $4 billion. So, you know, who knows exactly what the right point is, Ash Joe. At the end of the day, $4 billion is probably overcooked. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. It's hard to say 
you know, when should you stop? 100 mil, 200 mil, 500 mil, one bill, two bill. Um, it's hard to give that point in time, but you can probably say that, okay, once you're getting high up there into the tens of millions, you've probably got enough to sort you out and your family out, and it's time to shift from ant mode to grasshopper mode. Yeah, there's probably a few people listening right now who've got some rich parents and they're sweating, going, shit, I hope my parents don't read this book because they're going to blow out all the money and I'm going to have no inheritance left over. So, you know, but uh, Bill Bill does uh, work on this issue as well. Yeah, a lot of the time when he was throwing these ideas around dying with zero, people would say, die with zero? I want to give my kids something, you know? You know, I want to leave some kind of inheritance. I want to look after my family. I want to plan so that my kids and my kids' kids and my kids' kids' kids are all set up for the future. Um, you know, he might often when he was saying, you know, die with zero, people would come back. Well, what about the kids, you selfish old bastard, Bill? Yeah. Well, he was saying, well, part of dying with zero means giving money to your kids that you know that you want to give to your kids, and then spending all your money, what's left, spending it down to zero. So, if you really want to put your kids first, as you claim that you are. You're better off actually being a bit more strategic about this. Mm. Don't wait until you're dead to show your generosity. Putting your kids first might mean giving what you can to them much earlier and make more of a deliberate plan for your children and when you can have the most impact with the assets that you've got. Yeah, he's, he's got an interesting take on inheritances. He says that a normal inheritance, you're leaving a hell of a lot to chance. You know, at some random date in the future, you know, your kids may or may not be alive. You know, they may or may not need the money at this point. And all that happens is when you cark at whatever's left, they get it. So you don't know how much it is, when it is, who's going to get it. He's saying you want to be a bit more intentional about how can you actually deliver that money to give the maximum impact on the recipient's quality of life. That's it. So the research suggests most people get their inheritance at the age of 60. Now, it's pretty useless at the age of 60. It might give you a comfortable retirement. But if you get a big lump of cash that just lands on your feet, you know, you're playing golf. You're thinking, I, when I was like 20 to 30, when I was having kids... <laughs> I probably could have, you know, dealt with a couple of hundred grand here when I was trying to put them through school or buy a home or anything like that. Now I'm 60. It's pretty useless. The kids are out of home. I'm just paying for me now. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? He's got a story here to flesh this out. Virginia Collin, she was a, a divorced single mother of four kids. She was really struggling. Her ex gave her no child support, meant she had to raise four kids on her own, meant she had to work as much as possible just to get money, just to put food on the table. She said she was basically living at the edge of poverty. And then eventually, she was able to work through it. She got a decent job. She attained a bit of financial stability. She remarried, so she had a second income coming in. And then what happened is at the age of 49, her mother, who was now 76 at this point, she passed away, left a decent chunk of change. She got $130,000. Now, the problem was, at this point, was kind of useless to her. She, you know, her family set up. She's got a, a partner. She's got a house. She was saying that she could have really used, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars ten years earlier when she was at the brink of poverty. So up until this point, we've established that waiting until you die is is not optimal. So what is the optimal time to give money to, to your children? Certainly, it's easy to say what's suboptimal. Giving yeah. it to a twelve-year-old kid is yeah. probably probably pointless. <laughs> yeah, useless. Pretty good for a twelve-year-old kid. I don't know what you'd go out and purchase. I'd probably purchase like a lot of farm animals or something and build an enclosure. <laughs> um, or even a sixteen-year-old, they're probably you know tasting booze for the first time and yeah. want to travel and go to Bali. That inheritance will quickly disappear. I reckon that'll go pretty quick. And we've said that the other extreme is probably not good either. Yeah, if you think about you know if you're 
Uh, parents pass away when they're 80 or 90. They probably had you when they're between 20 or 30. You're between 60 and 70. By that point, your life's kind of set. You've got your retirement savings. You might be all sorted and you might be you might not need that money. And that you know, $100,000 when you're age 60 doesn't mean anywhere near as much as $100,000 when you're age 30. So Bill did the most robust of studies you possibly could do, <laughs> uh, being a, a Twitter poll. <laughs> and 3,500 people voted on the question. It turns out um, that... 29% voted for ages 36 to 45, 12% 18 to 25. So really the best range is that clear winner or that 26 to 35 range. That's it. He said that almost nobody said they wanted their inheritance money after age 46. And it makes sense. You've probably established in your career, your family's all grown up and you're all sorted. They also said very few people said they wanted their inheritance between 18 and 25 because they realized they were you know, immature and it wouldn't have really helped. But that peak time, you know, between mid-20s and mid-30s, a lot of shit's happening. You know, you're probably getting married. You're probably having kids. You probably want to buy a house. You probably want to then buy a bigger house to make room for more kids. And that's really when that money is going to make a massive difference. Um, so, I guess it's interesting. Anyone who's between 60 and 75 out there thinking, um, you know, I should give my kids a bit of extra coin now. I don't know. It's a big be a big decision to make. Mum, there. In, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, I know Mum listens to this uh, yeah, episode. <laughs> so, what are you trying to get at? No, no. I think it's just it is. It, it does make a lot of sense. You got one option is autopilot. You die at some point in the future. You give it to some amount of people. You yeah. don't know how many kids or grandkids you got at that point who are still left. You don't know how much is going to be left. You don't know when they're going to get it. Or if you think of the intentional path, yeah. you know, I could give them, you know, 50000 right now that could help them buy a new house in a, that they need that's really going to make a big difference. Yeah, I reckon, uh, I reckon a good investment for someone around that age is to really invest in your son and, and his mate <laughs> if, they're, if they're doing podcasting and they're going on a trip together. You know, if you've, flipped, you've put them on a trip to, yeah. as, to do the podcast and it's probably the best experience Kay could give you. I mean, Oh, too good. Okay, then now, okay, let's. We're not, it's all about money so far, but it's more than just money as well. If you realize that the true legacy you're giving when you pass away, the legacy isn't the check that you get as the inheritance. You know, your your parents passed away, and you know you're 60 or 70 years old, and you get a little check in the mail, or I don't even know how it works. <laughs> That's really not your legacy. The legacy is what you do with your family, the experiences you share with them, whilst you're all still alive and happy and healthy. So, we've covered a few things. You know, you can just give them money or you could actually take everything we've learned in this episode and uh, invest in experiences with your kids where everyone wins and you've got the experience dividends, so do they. Um, and, you know, you might be investing in a trip for them and their family or something like that. But anything like that, you really get that memory dividend um, alongside helping out your, your, your kids. Yeah, it's a, another argument, I guess, to go less ant mode of just work until you're in your 70s and save up and save up and then at some point give an inheritance. Again, more grasshopper mode, you know, maybe take a few sickies, take a few days off, spend some time with the family, go on a trip, whatever it is that you can then have those experiences with the broader family that are going to pay those memory dividends in the future. It's an impossible task to die with exactly zero. You're not going to, it's just not going to happen. So technically, you're going to fail to achieve that goal. Um, it's inevitable and it's okay, but it's still worth uh, taking the point and having a good crack for, to try and do it. Yeah, definitely. This is kind of like the opposite of every personal finance book we've read. Most personal finance books is like, how can you make as much money as possible? <laughs> this yeah, is grasshopper, like, grasshopper. <laughs> ant, do you mean? Ah, I mean ant. ant. <laughs> I mean, ant. Yeah. It's a <laughs> grasshopper selling a grasshopper lifestyle. What he's saying here is just saying that 
the point is to obviously you want to work to the point where you've got enough money that then supports you to, for the rest of your life where you can get down to zero. Obviously, the, you're building up, building up, building up only to the point where you can then you've got enough to survive. So he's saying you don't want to just keep working and keep storing up the you know the seeds for winter to the point where you die and there's a whole pile of seeds left over. He's saying you want to balance the ant and the grasshopper so you can have a bit of fun whilst you're doing it. Yeah, mate. I, this this book made me go out and buy a car again, doing the opposite of oh, what nice. uh, what every other book does. Yeah. Because I was driving around Tarzan with Corey, and it was like two thousand. It was a piece of shit. It's unsafe. The headlights weren't working. <laughs> Yeah, and Mate, this book drove, I was like, you I, did a like a twenty-hour trip interstate I did, trip. I, I can't believe Sydney. I did Sydney. I can't in that believe car. you did that trip. It's just ridiculous. So I was like. After reading this, I'm like, come on, mate. It's about time you just buy a half decent, okay car. You don't need to go too extreme. You know, don't be such a bloody ants that you can't buy a safe car for you and your partner. I also remember early in the book he talks about uh, evening out the expenses. Like if you think about it, when you're in uni. You know, you're not making much money. You're not spending much money. Then obviously, and you you know, you buy a house. You're spending a shitload of money, and then you get older and you stop spending money because you can't go out and do things. So he's, they were saying, you know, even it out, balance it out. You know, take on a bit of debt when you're early to spend more, and then pay it back when you're older. And I think it can be a bit dangerous. <laughs> that be advice. Dangerous. Yeah, and definitely this advice of how he's saying, you know, just you know, spend as much money as you can. You know, go with zero, go out and have fun, go out party, party, buy cars, buy experiences, go travel, play poker. Uh, if you take it. Too far, I think. Obviously, if you go too far, grasshopper can lead you into trouble. Probably but read both books. Probably this definitely. is this needs to be read in conjunction with all the other personal finance definitely, books. Yeah. But extremely dangerous if you read Justice and not the other one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think it's a very important one to add to the mix. So if you just read ant books, and you'll miss all the grasshopper. So remember, in the end, the business of life is the acquisition of memories. So what are you waiting for? Mm-hmm.